to this episode of Great Conversations. My guest today is Dr. Russell Lowry Hart. And Dr. Lowry Hart is a professor of speech communication and president of Amarillo College in Amarillo, Texas. Professor Larry Hart, President Larry Hart, thank you for joining us and welcome to Great Conversations. My privilege in calling me Russell. Everybody else does. So. <laughs> thank you, Russell. It's so good to have you here. And welcome to the Hoosier State. We're glad to have you thank here. You. Tell our audience just a bit about you. Well, I am I've been president of Amarillo College for four years, but I, I like to say I'm a recovering faculty member. My heart is in the classroom, and I think I've always known since a young age that I wanted to be a teacher of some kind. Uh, and education has really connected me to a passion of service to to my community and my, my neighbors, and um, is really my joy. Don't tell my my kids at home that are 15 and 17 uh, that teaching is my joy. They want to think it's them. but. Um, I, I, I love the role that education has to play in the future to save our communities, and, and I think we're the ones that have to do it. I have to say that in inviting you to the great conversation today and doing research about your work at Amarillo College, I was enthusiastic and excited about at least a couple of the programs that are mm -hmm. running there. Uh, one is uh, the Horizons Program, a consortium for student success, but also I'm intrigued by the concept of no excuses. Yeah. Can you tell our audience just a little bit about that? No excuses is a philosophy that guides every decision we make at the college and it was really created by a principal in San Diego named Damon Lopez uh, who uh, inherited a school that was failing and it was failing because of lack of real um, ambition on behalf of the students so just by changing a philosophy and the philosophy is simple that if a student fails, it's because we, as the teachers and as the institution, didn't have the right policy, process, or person in place to ensure their success. So the no excuses is for us, not our students, that when they're struggling, um, we have to take the bull by the horns and figure out what to do to help them be successful. I think so many times there's a relationship between the failure of the student and the failure of the teacher. Completely. It's a partnership. It's a relationship. It's the whole student yeah. teaching and we're having a relationship within the classroom. And Russell, that brings me to a third impressive program that I read about in getting ready to invite you to this conversation. And that is the program where you've instituted uh, some real supports for students, mm -hmm. uh, food banks, social services are there on your campus. What inspired that particular outreach for you? Well, it is it has changed our entire campus, really. Um, but our students inspired it. I'm an academic, so when I saw our success rates when I came to Amarillo College, I started by 
just listening to our students. I had secret shoppers that went through our processes to tell me what did and didn't make sense. And I asked them, what are the biggest barriers that you have to being successful in our classrooms? And their answers to those question, to that question, fundamentally changed who I am as a person, not just as an administrator. Because the biggest barriers they identified to their success in the classroom had nothing to do with the classroom. Childcare, healthcare, housing, food, um, utility payments, uh, uh, legal services, because it costs a lot to be poor in this country and we penalize poverty a lot. And so I'm here I am thinking as an academic when I'm asking this question, I'm going to get all kinds of academic responses. And instead, what I got were real life spot responses. And I knew that institutionally, if we were going to support our faculty, we had to support our students in a different way. What? So we have social workers, we have food pantries and clothing closets, but really more than anything, we have an intense connection to the social services in our community and connect our students to resources that go untapped and allow our faculty, whom I'm not asking to be social workers, uh, to just pay attention, to be aware, to be poverty informed, uh, so that as they see issues, uh, they can connect students to resources through our um, early alert process that now has a social service element to it. That's a fabulous way to really create pathways to the total student yeah. and to remove those barriers. I really appreciated the way that you stated that, uh, to remove the barriers so that genuine learning, immersive yeah. learning can take place. I also am attracted to that vocabulary you used because it leads directly into the first question I have for you that will invite you to take a look at the at what you do every day in a bit larger way but still focusing on barriers mm -hmm. so in the same kind of way that when you queried students you found that there were these barriers yeah. and they probably had very little to do with education Russell if I asked you to spin that question out today to higher education in general what might you say is the greatest, or maybe there are two or three greatest, challenges to higher education in the 21st century? And let me be clear, let me qualify. By challenge, I mean, what do you think are the greatest barriers for higher education that stand between what, we're, what we want to do, grow the commonwealth, mm -hmm. make education accessible to all students, and what we're actually doing, we may not be attaining that. What what are what's standing in our way of being able to do that? It's a, it's a, an important question, um, and and not one without easy answers, but one where I think in higher ed we're our own worst enemy because we've tried to answer that question with external forces, that our biggest barriers are politicians or lack of funding or a society that doesn't value education. And those things are present and they're real, I'm not diminishing them. But I think the biggest barrier we have in, in higher education is ourselves. And the, the, the more difficult our work gets, I think the more we wall our wall, uh, wall our work off and protect ourselves from it in some level. So um, we make it impersonal when it has to be more personal. 
Very interesting. I love that answer because I think it's right on. In so far as being our own worst enemies, mm -hmm. would you agree? Higher education has a, a tremendous, but very large and lumbering tradition. Yeah, a tradition perhaps born of a little bit different culture, and yeah. maybe we could even say a different world. And so navigating from what we were to what we want to become, maybe we're standing in our own way. Well, I, I think we in higher education we're we're governed by traditions. I just challenge my colleagues to understand where the tra traditions originated, and, and rarely do traditions originate in some empirical data. They originated from societal influences of when crops were being harvested and when the weather was at its worst. And now we've embraced them as if there's something magic in a 16-week semester um, with no empirical data to support that. So. Traditions can be helpful, they can be comforting, uh, they can be honoring, but not if they get in the way of our effectiveness. And so we have to challenge our traditions uh, and understand where, they're, where they were located uh, and figure out which ones are keeping, which ones are barriers to helping students uh, achieve in ways that our communities desperately need them to. I appreciate that. Almost immediately you took both challenges and barriers and getting rid of them to the classroom. Yeah. And that's where I want to go next. Russell, when you think about the greatest challenge, the greatest bear, us being our greatest enemy, how might teaching in particular, and looking at a granular level, how might what we do in the classroom every day begin to address this greatest challenge or greatest barrier how might teaching help us get out of our own way? Well, teaching is the answer. I mean, it is the foundation of what makes higher education great. Um, yet, it has challenges that we have to acknowledge and address, and it goes back to the, the conversation about traditions. We have classroom traditions that um, determine power differentials that determine where professors are placed physically in a classroom and how classrooms are structured and what learning's supposed to look like. But when you look at the landscape, and I've talked to my faculty colleagues a lot, um, the, the day and age of being information providers is over. Because what can happen is with their phone, a student can fact check you in real time. We have got to migrate to um, an understanding that education is helping students dissect what they're finding online, evaluate it, apply it, use it, and grow beyond it. It's, education is no longer about information dissemination, it is truly about learning. That can be exciting, but when you come from a tradition that is lecture-based, that is based in you imparting your knowledge onto your students, it's scary when you have people like me that are saying, let them access the knowledge and you tell them and work with them and facilitate their learning about what to do with it, how to question it, how to evaluate it, how to change it. That's an exciting time. I think what's happening and what could happen over the next five to ten years in higher education could be the thing that saves us, but if we ignore it and we try to, if we try to say that technology is the, the ill, rather than the solution, we're going to um, hold ourselves to a tradition and make ourselves obsolete. So there's a lot we can do 
in that classroom yes. to really uh, embrace that disruption. Yeah. I, I loved your use of that word of disruption in a really positive way. So do you feel like, Russell, currently we're doing enough to equip teachers with all they need to be those disrupting agents uh, in the classroom? We're certainly not. And uh, we're asking a lot of our faculty, and we're asking a lot of our teachers, but we're not giving them systems of support to ensure they get there. And, and, and some of that comes with the tradition of higher education where uh, our master's and PhD programs are about teaching and mastering content. And so we want our faculty to be the experts in their discipline, but we have not taught them as they're gaining their disciplinary expertise to gain their educational expertise at the same time. And so a lot of what we have to do is engage and support with our, with our monies and our systems and our rewards uh, faculty who are willing to learn how to be a great educator, not just a great teacher, because I think the transition is a teacher is the one with the knowledge that we impart, an educator is the one that ensures our students learn. It's a very important distinction, and again, one that would be critical to flesh out coming mm-hmm. as a content expert, as a teacher, yeah. and really growing into being an educator. You've intrigued me with a lot of what you've shared with me today, but now I'm going to put you on the hot seat and ask you to grab your crystal ball. Okay. You need to give it a couple swipes, look inside there, and tell me what you feel might be coming down the road as the greatest challenge to higher ed in the future. It's demographic shifts and population, our population shrinking. There's a book by, I I think his last name is Graw, called Demographic Shifts in Higher Education. Mm -hmm. And every faculty and higher education administrator should read it and should scare the snot out of us. Mm -hmm. Because basically we have the lowest population growth over the last 10 years that we've had in a a century. So the the biggest threat is that we have a behemoth of infrastructure and um, bureaucracy that is suddenly going to see a massive shrink of students available to us. And we have to adapt. And instead, what we want is is for our students to adapt to us and to fit into our structures. And given the demographic shifts and the shrinking population, we're going to have to mine a population of neighbors that have never seen themselves in higher education. And we're going to have to give them a higher education experience located where they are emotionally, intellectually, physically, rather than hoping that they come into our environment and can adapt to us. We're going to have to adapt to them. The notion of making our campuses student ready yeah. instead of our students campus ready, Completely. or maybe meeting somewhere in the middle yeah. at some point. Russell, I have been uh, enthralled by your answers today. You've uh, provided a unique oculus for us into higher ed. I'm going to jump out there and ask uh, yet one last question. We've talked about challenges and barriers. We've talked about past, present, and future. 
I want to ask about now your heart's desire and wish. If you could make one wish come true mm. for higher education, for your school, for your students in the future, what wish would you make come true for wow. these students? That's a great question. Um, I talk to our students a lot, and I, I use them as secret shoppers. I, do, I personally do focus groups for them to give me their insights, and they're remarkable. They're smart. They're ambitious, but they f- are wearing a burden that I'd never had to wear and that most of our faculty didn't wear when we were in school, and it's a burden to care for their families, either their children or their parents or both. Uh, they're working more than they've ever worked before. They're, they're, wearing, they're wearing the burden of a war zone on poverty that dehumanizes them. Uh, and so my, my wish, if I could wish it, is that all of our faculty and, and administrators could see our students for who they are, not who we wish they were, and love them for who they are rather than trying to love them into being who we wish they were or who we thought they were. And that, um, that we wouldn't confuse loving students to success with complete wraparound support. We wouldn't confuse that with um, lowering our standards. That just because you love a student uh, to success and know, know who they are and provide support for them does not mean that you don't want for them and are ambitious for them. They need our high expectations. They need our rigor more now than ever. They're just going to need our, our loving supports to reach that rigor. I know that with your insight and your gracious understanding, you're going to lead your faculty to lead your students to that better day. Well, you're kind, but I would say my faculty have led me to this understanding. They, faculty are the key to any administrator, any administrator's success. They are the heart of our institution, the heart of higher education collectively, which is why these conversations are so important. What we're asking them to do is different today than it was even 10 years ago. But just like we've got to love our students to success, we've got to love our faculty to success as well. When I, when I think about the burden that we have in higher education and the burden that I'm needing faculty to embrace, it's, it's located in a much larger position than it's been. I truly believe that the future of our country rests on faculty's ability to reframe higher education for students that don't see themselves in higher education. And it's purely based on economics. Edward Glazer wrote a book called Triumph of the City, and he predicts which cities are going to succeed and fail based on one number, and it's education attainment. And our country is entering a crisis in education attainment. Um, In my own community, Amarillo, uh, our education attainment rates are right at 30%. When you look at the economics of what we're doing, that means the only workforce growth that's going to happen in my community is in low-skill manual labor. And they're important jobs, and we need them. But the hope for my community is that my faculty and I can move that number from 30 to 40 to 50% so that we can diversify our economy and grow our community. And it will only happen if higher education um, can rethink itself and save it, save our communities from themselves. Education is the answer, but it's got to be a new way of 
offering it, of locating it, of the cultures that embrace it, um, or economically, our communities like mine, a rural community in Texas, is going to melt away. And I don't want it to, and I know the solution are faculty who are willing to embrace a new way of thinking about their classroom experience. We have so many more tools today to bring learning to life mm. in the classroom as well, and so many tools to help uh, individuals, again, who might not have seen themselves at the university yeah. to bridge to us. I think your vision will create a better day. Well, the, the reality is historically higher education could be exclusive. And it meant something different um, even 30 years ago. Economically, for us to be competitive in a global economy, it can't be exclusive. It has to be yeah. inclusive. And we've got to bring in every single person we can to get a credential of some kind because my future depends on my neighbor's education attainment rate. Typically, my future is dependent on me. Now my future is dependent on my neighbors. And, and higher education's got to embrace that concept. And if we can bring more students to the table as different players, different mm. idea ar architects, it will make the college experience richer for everyone Completely. in the first place. Completely. It's a win-win win situation. It is a win-win. If you can, I, I But we've got to want to win which means we got to want to do things a little differently sure. and we're in a time where we get to figure what that figure out what that is yes but my concern is if we don't embrace the challenge then a politician or a for-profit company is going to come in and do it for us or right. do it without us and yes. and we're on the verge of being obsolete if we can't um, re-envision ourselves Russell, thank you so much for joining us today. Your remarks and just your way of being is inspirational to us. Mm, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.